You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Pete Richardson and Leslie Newson, who are both at University of California, Davis, in the Environmental Science and Policy Department, and they're the authors of this new book called A Story of Us, A New Look at Human Evolution. Pete is also the author of a number of other books, some of which I have here. I have this one co-authored with Robert Boyd, Not by Genes Alone, and this one, Go Way Back in the Archives, Culture and the Evolutionary Process. So welcome to you both. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. So look, I think this argument or discussion or dichotomy between nature and nurture, between nomos and physis, have been around since at least pre-Socratics, right? We humans are fascinated with kind of what is natural and what is a human creation, right? And I think in today's world, we kind of like to talk about the same divide, but we do it a little bit differently, right? We talk about the methods of transmitting information, right? And there's a genetic way of transmitting information, and there's sort of a a non-genetic way of transmitting information, which we sometimes call culture. And, you know, this book, I mean, it's mostly about culture and how it became kind of the human superpower. And of course, its main function is to help us create, raise, and successfully push children out into the next generation, right? At the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. So how fundamental is this thing we call culture? And it's not a uniquely human thing, right? The book is really about the aspects of it, which are uniquely human, but culture is something that exists to a greater or lesser degree in a wide range of animals, right? Right. So there's so much exciting research being done now, looking at animals and how animals among other animals, just pick up information. There's very few really convincing signs of one animal teaching another animal, but certainly animals gain a lot by being with other animals. It's hard to know what it feels like for them, but we now know that you can have a population of animals that all kind of does the same thing, and it's not because they have the same genes, it's because they hang around together and they just do the same things like humans do. So, uh, yeah, animal culture exists. It's just that it really is the human superpower. It's what we do. Right. Well, so there's information that you're born with. There's information that you learn through trial and error and experiencing the world. And then there's information that you kind of learn laterally, right, where someone else had to go through the trial and error. And it's really that third thing that is what we call culture, right? It's not just any old kind of learning. It has to be kind of learning from others, right, that have interacted with the world. But I always think of culture as being information that's shared uh, with other members of a population. So it's equivalent in a way to a gene pool. So you, you have a group of animals that forms into a population and their genes are mixing all the time. And in, there's a gene pool, which kind of describes them. And it's, it's the same with culture. There's a cultural pool. So we, we belong to a culture that has anesthesiologists. Neither you or I would know how to do anesthesiology, but we, it's part of our culture, and so we share in it. So if we have an operation, the information is beneficial to us. And that's kind of what's so exciting. 
And you can see the same in a very simple way with animal cultures, I think. Right. And so you talk about there's examples like crows, right, that can learn how to access worms in these jars, so to speak, right, or crevices, right? And there's different primates that will kind of learn from other primates how to get termites out of a termite mound and, yeah. and, and that sort of thing, right? So what is it that's uniquely human about culture? Because it's not just that we have larger organizations, but there's something about our capacity to store this information, which is exponentially greater than the capacity of these other species to, to store this information. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. Rob Boyd and I have argued that uh, humans are unique in having massively cumulative cultures. So we have multi-part tools, for example. Take something as simple as a stone-tipped spear. You've got to know how to nap the stone. You've got to know how to pick the wood for the shaft and what shape the shaft should be. And then you have to have adhesives or cordage or both to fasten the spear point to the shaft. And so even three-part cultural technological items like that are rare or absent in the non-human cultural world. And we just pile innovation on top of innovation to ultimately create things like mobile phones. So does this follow the same type of evolutionary process as the evolution of genetic complexity? I mean, certainly the Genetic instructions of, of a human are far more complicated than the genetic instructions for a paramecium, right? So we, we've been kind of adding much more sophisticated knowledge, right? Our genes have more information encoded in them than our more primitive ancestors, right? So can we just analogously use the same thought process of variety and selection and inheritance that we apply to genes? So I think that the answer to your question by and large is yes. The cultural adaptation process does, broadly speaking, resemble the genetic adaptation process in this business of piling one innovation on top of another to generate sophisticated adaptations. But the processes by which cultural adaptation proceeds are subtly different from organic evolution. Organic evolution is dependent upon random mutation and natural selection, which is a relatively slow and cumbersome process, uh, whereas uh, cultural adaptations can depend upon non-random innovations. We learn and, and innovate in ways that in which we design the uh, solution in our heads, at least, or through trial and error. And generally speaking, that's better than a literal random mutation. And then we can spread these things, for example, horizontally, if there are sudden environmental changes uh, everybody scrambles around to try to find an adaptation to the to the new environment. If somebody finds one, they can spread it to their relatives and friends, and it can spread horizontally, as we say, quite rapidly. And the adaptation can be established in uh, you know days, weeks, months, a few years, as compared to many generations. And Greg, I think it's very interesting the way you chose the paramecium to compare to us, because a paramecium is a single cell organism. And the thing about humans is that we aren't single at all. We belong to groups and we belong to families and we share information with these other group members. Paramecia are single cell organisms that live on their own. At some point in evolutionary history, our branch developed into multicellularity, in which you have a group, essentially an animal, um, that's competing against other animals. And when humans came along, 
they created a group of humans sharing a culture that can be compared with another group or other groups of humans with a different culture. So it, it's kind of neat. It's, um, it's what John Maynard Smith and Pete knows how to pronounce the other guy's name. Satmarai. Their Great Transformations book, which is an amazing book. Well, so one of the great things about your book is that you have these little stories, right, where you have to imagine yourself being a child growing up in each of these environments. And, you know, the further back in time we go, the less kind of learning there is from sources other than one's direct ancestors, right? So you talk about how the mothers really were the ones that transmitted most of the know-how to their children. And then there was much less in the way of kids learning from other kids and so forth. And it seems to me that the choice, if we're thinking about this as a, as a choice of hardwiring know-how into the genes versus relying on this kind of external storage mechanism for knowledge, it seems like the, the latter, even though it does facilitate all these wonderful things, it seems a lot more brittle, right? Because if the population shrinks or, you know, if the adults die off or if all the knowledge is distributed, then it can kind of disappear at a moment, right? Whereas if it's hardwired, then you can just send your infants out into the world and they can more or less fend for themselves. So if you were designing kind of an optimal storage system, when would you want to store things? When would you want to hard code things? And when would you want to kind of rely more on this cloud computing, right? I mean, that's really what it is, right? It's like you've got stuff on your hard drive and then you got stuff up in the cloud. And we all know that if the Wi-Fi goes down, then your access to the data in the cloud kind of goes away. So Rob and I made that the central topic of our 85 book that you showed on the, at the beginning. It's a kind of a functional analysis of what culture is good for, at least according to the models we made in that book, what culture is good for is adapting to spatial and temporal environmental variation on a certain time scale. So if the fluctuations are very short time scale, then the only thing that is useful is individual learning. You have to adapt to these high frequency fluctuations by individual phenotypic flexibility. If the fluctuations are slow enough, then adaptation by genetic means is fine. It tracks the slow moving environmental changes perfectly well. If the in time, if the fluctuations are fairly rapid, but not too rapid, then it makes sense to learn from mom and dad and, and other people of an older generation. If there's still more rapid, then it makes sense to learn from other people of the mm -hmm. same generation, horizontal transmission as, as the jargon goes. And so the advantages of culture slip into this particular window of spatial and temporal mm -hmm. variation. And our argument has been for a long time that the Pleistocene environment uh, both generated more spatial and more temporal variation. And the variation, in much of it is on the millennial in, in time, is on the millennial and submillennial timescale. And that's the timescales that our analysis suggested were uh, the sweet spot for the evolution of sophisticated culture. And then humans were pre-adapted to take advantage of culture we argue because, well, in the simplest example, we have hands to make technology. So technology acts as a kind of a multiplier and other animals have simple tools, but hands are really good for making and, and using tools. And, and that probably 
gave us a spectacular advantage in, in taking advantage of culture. Well, Leslie, you, you guys picked a couple of discrete moments, right? So the book is divided up into these, you know, seminal or I guess stylized moments in our evolution where there were profound leaps or steps made. And, you know, one of the steps was just the move to the, the savannah, right? And so what was so important about that move, right, out of the trees and into the savannah? Was it that it created this pre-adaptation that allowed for the emergence of culture? And if so, why didn't this also, you know, apply to the vervet monkeys, right? They presumably had all the same constraints. They had to survive in the same environment. So why aren't we sending, um, you know, ambassadors off to the vervet monkey nation? And, uh, you know, where's the vervet monkey literature? Like, what's going on here? Well, vervets aren't apes, and they don't have the same problems as apes. And they're on a different evolutionary trajectory. I think that the problems that apes had was the females. I looked and looked at the research into apes that lived in a drier environment, and I found that it was almost always the male apes. And when they went out, they just thrashed about. They didn't have the meticulously careful foraging techniques that they use within the sort of tropical forest environment or the woodland environment they normally live in. And the females and babies hardly ever left the rainforest. And it, I don't think I ever saw anybody saying this, but it seems to me that it must be really hard if you're a female ape with a baby going out into the dry savanna because not only are you far more exposed to predators, and of course, you and your baby are the, are the one that the predators will go after, but also if you're nursing the baby, you're having to supply moisture all the time to that baby. And if, if you're out in the dry, you might have to go a half a mile away or so from the source of water. So it seemed to me that there's a very good reason why other apes didn't go out into the savannah and the drier areas. It's because reproduction had to happen in those areas, and, and the females had this infant with them for several years. There was never a good time of the year. There was never a wet time they could go out. And so I felt that they had to form groups with a, a home base where the females cooperated, taking turns caring for their babies. This is something that we do see in other animals. It's not that common, but it seems like the obvious way that female apes could do it. In the case of monkeys, it's a different problem because the babies grow up more quickly. So it's not as if you have a, a whole sort of four-year stint of carrying around this bigger and bigger infant that still isn't weaned. Does that make sense? <laughs> I could talk about the sad nausea. Well, that is one of the threads that goes throughout the book is this problem of child rearing and the need for cooperation, right, when there's vulnerability. And so is the cooperation between the mothers uh, a source of culture or is it a product of culture, right? Do you need culture in order to cooperate or does the cooperation sort of lay the foundation for the emergence of culture? Both. They're wound around each other. You need to form the trust to allow your infant to stay with another female, which is something that chimpanzee mothers and bonobo mothers mm -hmm. won't do. But then when you do uh, leave your infant with another experienced individual, that infant has the opportunity of learning from another experienced individual. Mm -hmm. And so simply exposing the infant or juvenile to other individuals encourages culture because then the infant is able to see how several different people do it. Right. So instead of just vertical transmission, there's like a diagonal transmission of knowledge. Right. 
but there's also selection for the baby who can choose between it. I mean, some infants might have just been confused seeing two different ways of doing things, but there was selection on the infant that could see both ways and make a choice, make a sensible choice between them. So that created the environment which would select a gene from that kind of discernment, and it would create the environment where that kind of discernment was useful. So that's how getting together, raising young together, encouraged culture. But then, of course, culture would be part of the mother's behavior in looking after the infants. So if the different infants didn't get on, if they were fighting the way chimpanzee infants do, they're quite aggressive to one another sometimes, there could be a culture of parenting, if you like, with the mothers punishing infants if they behave aggressively. And in that way, the infants who are the most aggressive, rather than being the dominant infants that would eventually come to dominate the herd and have more offspring, those infants would be at risk of not even surviving to be adults because punishment isn't good for infants. (laughs) And so they would be less well off. So you speculate that kind of sociability is not something, I mean, Richard Wrangham talks about the kind of the homicide hypothesis, right? The punishment hypothesis. So that's kind of more peers punishing peers for kind of being out of line. Yeah, it's it's guys doing it. You know, he obviously, he's a guy and he thinks guys can do this and it can all be guys. Mothers can punish too. In fact, it's a lot less costly to punish an infant than it is to punish a peer. To kind so. of teach the child how to survive in a social environment, teach them the political tools that they need to negotiate interaction with others. Right. And also neurological tools. I mean, it, there's a certain amount of neurology in being able to control your anger that some little kid has just stolen your food. And it's necessary for youngsters to not like kill a little bit that's just stolen their food. And so that kind of punishment would be selected for culturally. And that kind of punishment would mitigate against aggressive children. And neurobiologically, the expansion of the human brain includes the expansion of those so-called executive areas that would make self-control more possible. Yeah. Well, that reminds me. So part of the story is about the continual increase in the size of the human brain. And one would think that if we are kind of outsourcing all of this knowledge to this kind of worldwide web, that we don't really need to carry all this information inside of our own heads, right? So, you know, we all know about the taxi drivers in London and how they're hippocampi get big. And then as soon as Google Maps comes along, their hippocampi shrivel down into nothingness, kind of like ours is right now, because I can't even, I got to use Google Maps to get to the bathroom, right? (laughs) So why wouldn't our brains get smaller? Because, I mean, it would seem like the bigger the network comes, the smaller the brain could be, unless the complexity of the information is rising at an even faster pace than the ability to outsource it. But also... It's actually kind of hard the more complex the network goes. I mean, we discovered that with our own World Wide Web, right? As soon as you have it all up there, we discover that a certain portion of it, nobody knows how much, is very tempting-looking misinformation. And then there's the information that tries to sneak in. I mean, the bigger the web, the more you kind of need a sophisticated computer to sort between it. It just tangles up. Yeah, these things keep getting more and more powerful. I think a lot of people thought that we would have sort of Chromebooks replacing CPUs that were, you know, powerful CPUs. But in fact, these remote devices just keep getting more and more sophisticated. Is that kind of the analogy we should be thinking about? Yeah, I guess so. It seems to me. Well, it seems to me that we 
do both things. We get this big brain because we have to master a pretty large amount of culture as individuals. But at the same time, we engage in a division of labor exercise. We want culture we want. It's adaptive to have culture that's uh, uh, even more sophisticated than, than one brain can, can manage. And so we divide the labor. And some people know how to do one thing and some people know how to do another. Even the simplest societies have a division of labor between men and women. And typically, there also is a division of labor between people who specialize in making certain kinds of tools mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And, and of course, in modern societies, to manage the very complicated things like our cell phone. No one person takes a whole uh, universe of engineers to build a cell phone, not to mention the the miners that extract the raw materials and the salesmen that peddle them to us. So there's a vast division of labor that stands behind any complicated modern piece of technology. So what is the role of language, right? So we talked about how animals can have culture, right? They can kind of learn from other animals about how to hunt and, and so forth, but even just basic things like what to eat and what not to eat and so forth. I mean, rats even can sort of figure out what not to eat. You know, I, I had some rats in my house and man, the, <laughs> I, man, the, the, the traps were licked clean. There was just no, I mean, they, they figured this out. One guy got it and then that was it. None of them were going to go anywhere near those things. So what does language in, enable? Is it just allow you to encode so much more information, store it more efficiently, communicate it better? Is there just a limit to how much you can communicate through pantomime and example? Yeah, I think that's the right way to think about it. It seems to me their language is used in two critical circumstances. One is just explaining technology. You do it this way, not that way. In the case of technology, often a a picture is worth a thousand words. So a demonstration is at least as effective as a verbal instruction. But I mean, if you think about, say, your tool, right, if you think about your axe, yeah. right, I mean, if we're talking about how an axe might evolve and become more effective at killing animals, right, you don't probably need any language to do that, right? Those tools could evolve and become very sophisticated without having any need to explain what it is you're doing with the stone and with the wood and with the rope and so forth, right? Well, yeah, you would think so. And, and I think that is true to a large extent. On the other hand, Kevin Leyland and his students did these neat experiments with co- rather complicated devices that could produce a reward, and they compared how kids uh, dealt with this problem. I forget what age, five, six years old, and apes and monkeys. They had an array of species that they exposed to this thing, and the kids did a lot better at the more complicated ways of managing this device to get the most reward. and. The way they did it was by explaining to the kids that didn't know how to do it, the kids that did learn how to do it, it would explain why you do it this way. Let me show you. So language uh, seemed to play a key role, even in the case of technology. But it seems to me that the place where it's really critical is in social organization, explaining the rules of society. You can demonstrate the rules of society, but it's uh, much more efficient, it seems to me, to explain, look, we don't do it this way. You can't go out in the forest and harvest that tree. It's too valuable and you have to have, we have to control our exploitation of that particular valuable species. So you got to ask permission before you go get one of those. That's, it seems to me the social rules get complicated and hard to manage without verbal explanations. 
But the thing is, though, they end up, people don't give verbal explanations so much as they tell stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why we ended up telling stories in our book, because it suddenly everything seemed too complicated to explain without a story. It's, it almost seems as if it's the example, it's the demonstration, it's the picture. And you can get over all kinds of complicated information. And there's no way of telling a story without having language. And knowing the same stories binds the people together. Believing the same stories binds people together, which is one of the most important things for any culture. And so, so narrative is kind of like a compression technology. It maintains some fidelity in a way that, that non-narrative doesn't. I mean, when I teach, I always illustrate every point with a story. And then when I talk to the students 20 years later, they remember the stories, and don't remember anything else, right? <laughs> I think the other thing that stories do is mobilize the emotions. And that's really important for social life. Social life particularly is emotion-driven, what we love and what we hate, I guess. And that sort of thing is, is critically important. And you, you can't, just a dry recitation of a constitution doesn't make for patriotism, right? It doesn't mobilize <laughs> the uh, emotional aspects of social life. So one question is, we were human-like for many millennia before we developed the capacity for spoken language, right? I disagree with that. I don't think we know when we developed the capacity for spoken language. But I do think that you can have spoken language and usefully use spoken language while still having quite a simple culture. Why not? And I, I think that culture got more complex and language got more complex once more and more groups got together and found ways of reconciling their different stories and their their different beliefs and that kind of thing, it made it possible to have a, a more complex culture. But I don't think language was necessarily a big change other than it got more complex along with the rest of the culture. What, do you agree with that, darling? Yeah, it's people have very different ideas about when language became important. I remember in the 1970s, there was a fellow, Julian Jane, who yeah. argued that even the Greeks had primitive language, that language was something that evolved in the Holocene. So that sort of anchors one extreme. And other people imagine that Homo erectus uh, already had command of a pretty good spoken language. That's kind of where we come down. But the uh, original spoken language might have been a, along the lines of me, Tarzan, you, Jane. It uh, might have been rather crude, small vocabularies and, and not very complex syntax. And so the evolution of language might have been something that just rolled along with all of the other cultural tools that we use, and the rudiments of it go back very far. But it seems like the older languages are, when we're looking at more recent times, seem to be more complex, right? If you try to learn Basque or even ancient Greek, it has more tenses. and more, I mean, we speak now almost like a pidgin language, right, with English. I mean, it seems like language just keeps getting simpler and simpler as our community sizes get bigger and bigger. Yeah, if I understand the uh, historical linguist correctly, the languages that, that have very few second language speakers develop very complicated mm-hmm. syntax, but they often have quite small vocabulary. So English is a good example. It has a gigantic vocabulary, and relative to, uh, to its German ancestors, uh, I mean, German still carries four cases and is heavily in, inflected and is terrible to learn as a second language. I mm-hmm. studied German in high school and it's, it's pretty, pretty difficult 
to uh, master all of those inflections and really keep them running smoothly. So the braining theory is that languages like English that have lots of second language speakers, the uh, French aristocrats who conquered England in 1066 had to master this Germanic language and they tended to simplify it because it was hard to learn as a second language. And and that's the, as I say, the standard story about the evolution of complexity in language. Well, I want to get back to this. I think this is sort of one of the key central points in the book, which is that what makes us uniquely human was a survival skill worked best or was optimized for a highly volatile, highly variable environment. And like we know from Darwinian evolution that you know, when the environment is stable for a very long period of time, that the mutations kind of go away and, and you just kind of double down on whatever works. And then you're much less prepared for a shock when it happens, right? And I use this metaphor all the time in business, right? Because we talk about when a business is able to sustain a business model for decades on end, it just kind of shuts down its R&D department. It just kind of like fires anybody who's questions the way things are being done. And so this variability, it's Temporal variability, spatial variability, right? What was the key kind of variability that led to the creation of this uniquely human superpower? And then when things settled down, right, after this period of high variability, temporal variability, when it kind of settled down, why didn't we just kind of go back to being these simpler creatures? Why didn't we take all that knowledge that we acquired and just kind of start packing it into the DNA? I mean, not not like in a like Lysenkoist way, but it makes sense to just start hardwiring this stuff if, if we're not going to see a whole lot of variability going forward in the environment. My picture of it is that during the last glacial, at least, when culture got very sophisticated, we were mainly being driven by high rates of temporal variability. It seems as if the last glacial from around 60 or 70,000 years ago till around 15,000 years ago was the most variable that it's ever been, even during the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene seems to be a movable feast. It was getting more and more variable, at least during a glacial epoch. And the last one was the craziest of all. And then suddenly, very suddenly at the Holocene transition, uh, that all disappeared, at least relatively speaking. Then we went off on this burst of a sort of a cultural adaptive radiation. We started to get into plants, our populations increased, and people started adapting to very local ecological conditions. Uh, hunting big game is a kind of a generic adaptation. Any place where there's medium-sized game, you can make a go of it. One animal substitutes for another. But when you get into plant resources, they're not such easy substitutes. They have different nutritional profiles. You can't get along on, on wheat alone, and you have to mix it with other foods. That's all pretty sophisticated. So we've been building these more and more sophisticated adaptations to local environments. And then we got into this massive division of labor thing that we talked about with regard to modern technology. So we just switched gears and went from adapting to highly variable environments in time to exploiting variation in space. And that, it seems to me, is the way to look at the last... 50, 60,000 years of human history. Now, there's also a case to be made that uh, our brains actually shrank. To judge from the relatively few skulls that are intact enough to uh, estimate brain size, Neanderthals and upper Paleolithic people had 
very big brains, bigger than ours, bigger than Holocene people. So to some extent, that may have just been, we just got stupider when the environment got quieter. Well, I mean, I can testify that it's probably happened in the last 10 years. I don't know about last million years, but last 10 years, certainly, I think there's been a trend in that direction. But, so we invented this, well, not the phrase isn't invented by us, but I suddenly realized its brilliance when I heard an archaeologist talking about it, talking about social tools. Mm -hmm. And social tools are tools which help get people together. And humans 100,000 years ago didn't have many social tools. There were some, you know, the parenting techniques, there were some, but the family stayed together because they were a family. They knew one another. But a much larger cultural base could be developed if the families could become bound to each other. And this could happen through marriage, this could happen. There's lots of social tools that make this possible. But when this last ice age came and everything was so crazy, those kind of social tools to knit families together were essential because people had to care about people they didn't even know. Their, their survival depended on sharing information and sharing food between people they didn't know just because they were people. I can't imagine how else they could have done it. And so we envisage social tools such as rituals and shared beliefs that existed between large numbers of people, which encouraged them to share information and work together to solve problems. And once these to social tools existed and the Ice Age ended, then humans could be much more effective exploiting the vast numbers of new habitats that sprang up after the Ice Age. So when you talk about the five different kind of human type creatures that were competing for supremacy at one point in our history, the other four disappeared. Is it because we were able to sustain larger groups than they were, right? I think part of the story of the book is about how these families became tribes, but then these tribes almost became like coalitions of tribes. And if you follow the trajectory all, all the way to the present, you know, we've got Facebook with you know, 3 billion members, but it was really about this continual increase in the, the size of the network through which these ideas, innovations, stories, narratives, and techniques could circulate. And you have this wonderful depiction, this fictional depiction of these folks from all over the tundra coming together <laughs> somewhere in Siberia for a communal religious and ceremonial event, presumably coming from thousands of miles away. And they're able to coordinate this through different cultural tools that tracked time and place. Um, and it's, it's rather remarkable. So presumably the other humanoids could not do this any more than any other creature. I mean, I think the only other creature that could do anything like this would be kind of the whales, right? Yeah, I think that's right. That fictional depiction we have is based upon what we know about this Gravettian phenomenon. The Gravettian is a name for the Upper Paleolithic people that lived from about 35,000 years ago till about 20,000 years ago. And it seems as if this was one cultural phenomenon that covered all of Europe, from the Urals to the Atlantic and from the ice margins in the north to the Mediterranean. Some of these signature artifacts, for example, these Venus figurines are very similar across this vast spectrum of time and, and space. And so it seems as if people use social tools to organize themselves on a very large scale to cope with these terrible temporal variations, people were experiencing booms and busts and having people to flee away from a bus. And on the other hand, people who 
had a boom would recruit people from as far away as possible to take part in the boom and in order to establish friendships and connections that might serve them in the next inevitable bust that was coming. Now, in the Holocene, the size of geographical size of ethnic groups shrank drastically. So that was part of this adaptation to spatial rather than temporal variation. Yeah, we have an amazing amount of mysterious stuff and mysterious artifacts from the last ice age. And a lot of people believe that those identical scratches on so many bits of bone and antler are a kind of a calendar. And why would they need a calendar if they weren't meeting? And why would they meet if they weren't doing something extraordinary at those meetings? And so they were all social tools. And we use them today. We use ceremony and meetings, some people more effectively than others, to bring us together. And we need it. And so we know that, right, when, when you have a small language community, the language kind of doesn't evolve very quickly. But when you have a large language community, the language evolves very quickly. And, you know, that's a metaphor for the evolution of ideas and know-how, right? So the bigger the network, the greater the opportunity that you're going to have some discovery. And then that discovery will diffuse right through the network. And so is a story of us continually figuring out how to make that network bigger and if so, then is the variability that we are increasingly adapting ourselves towards like endogenous variability, right? If the environment never changed, we would still be faced with all of this innovation and all of these, this social transformation that's happening. And then we would need to be able to evolve to that. You know, when I teach business strategy, we talk about there's the exogenous variability, like, you know, the discovery of oil comes in from out of nowhere. And then there's the endogenous variability, which is kind of what all the other companies are doing. And you have to figure out how to adapt to what they're doing. Is is it really like endogenous variability that is driving our evolution and keeping this uniquely human attribute going forward? Well, my take on it is, again, that we expand and contract our social networks uh, depending upon the demands of the adaptations that we're achieving. So in the last ice age, the, the largest social network possible was the best. In the Holocene, learning from you, if, you, if you're specializing on a narrow geographical or technological adaptation, you don't want to learn too much from your distant neighbors. You want to learn from your immediate neighbors. Or if you're thinking of modern professions, uh, college professors shouldn't learn from lawyers and lawyers shouldn't learn from doctors and plumbers shouldn't learn from electricians. Uh, that uh, you'll just get confused if you try to uh, adopt the uh, social practices or technological practices of a neighboring group. And now we're faced with, uh, it's sort of back to the last ice age. All of a sudden, we've endogenously created these uh, variation in, in climate that's so threatening and the loss of biodiversity and, and things like that. So we're having to switch back to adapting to more temporal variation and it's not an easy transition. And one of the big impediments, I mean, we've had this COP thing in Glasgow, and what's, what's the biggest impediment to responding to global climate change? It's a modern nation state based on ethnic groups that makes it so hard for us to cooperate on the global scale. So it seems to me that we're having trouble reestablishing a, a, a Gravettian kind of adaptation to temporal variation because we're so used to adapting to spatial variation. Can I just say something else too that people don't often think about? The other thing that's happened, and it's happened 
almost without us noticing it, is that suddenly we've lost families throughout all of these widening and shrinking of social networks. The fundamental group around a person was family. And that changed very recently. It's hard for people to grasp how strong and how important families were in the past. In the past, people had deep, deep social networks that might not have been very broad, but they were deep. And it's hard for us who live today to imagine what that might have been like. I mean, and I feel that there needs to be a lot more anthropological research to talk about people who still have that, people who may live in the mountains of Afghanistan. It's different being like that. And we know in our own society how we fall down so much on the personal level. You know, businesses try to be like families <laughs> mm-hmm. when, when they feel that their employees need families, but they aren't like families. And I think that so many people feel lost. Mm-hmm. It kind of doesn't surprise me because social networks today are so different. And of course, the families we have today are tiny, etiolated things that only produce one or two children, if that. They're just not good at doing what families did in the past. Right. So if you want to learn how to raise children, you don't ask your extended family. You go read Dr. Spock or something like this. So potentially that could be a good thing, right? If there is some expertise that out there that's developing rapidly, then it can get diffused much more quickly, presumably, when you have these broader rather than tighter social networks. Well, certainly old family remedies are not as good as modern medicine. Right. But I'm not sure that, starting with Dr. Spock and all the other childcare experts, I'm not really sure that they really knew what they were talking about. Right. So you can have bad ideas diffuse also (laughs) through these networks relatively quickly. And so, you know, one of the points that you make is that in order for something to diffuse in culture, it doesn't need to be true. Uh, In order for it to sustain as part of culture, it just needs to be useful in some way. And in particular, if it's useful in helping you to bring children to adulthood, then it's going to persist. And it doesn't have any necessarily propositional value. So there's lots of elements of culture that aren't true to some extent. And among this, you you include folk stories, mythologies, religions, and, and so forth. And so this also presumably is uniquely human, although some people would say that animals probably have a worldview that is is very religious in some ways, right? They see an object move, they, they think it's alive or something like that. So can you elaborate on that? And you also reference kind of the junk DNA of culture, which is kind of stuff that may have made sense at one point and we're just kind of carrying it around. It's just there and, and just like junk DNA, it may serve some latent purpose and be ready to be activated should the need arise. Could he kind of double down that metaphor? Yeah. Rob and I have always been interested in cultural maladaptations. So the the fact Mm -hmm. that you're getting information from people that aren't your parents can be very pathological. I mean, this is the great lesson of Facebook, right? That uh, expanding social networks and and responding to uh, people that aren't your parents uh, can uh, result in, in lots of uh, bad stuff circulating. I mean, just beginning with advertisers, there are people out there that want to lift your wallet, basically sell you stuff you don't really need. So there's pathological information being deliberately spread. The uh, demagoguery of, of some political figures in recent years is an extreme example of that. I, if I live long enough, I'm going to write a paper that summarizes all of the ways that culture can go bad in one compact place. 
Uh, there's lots of different ways. So, I mean, it's true of biological evolution too. It's mostly adaptive, but there's junk DNA and there are various kinds of pathologies that can spread through even natural selection. So this is a theme of evolution that we need to remember. And just think about some of the things that people in our culture now think are so terrible, such as the idea that women shouldn't go to war, women shouldn't be expected to do hard work, women should stay at home and enjoy their children. These seem just like a terrible idea to people today, but it was incredibly adaptive. I mean, if women have a huge range of things to do, why are they going to decide to get pregnant and have all the discomfort and risk of childbirth and all that when they can do something much more exciting? And so it worked for the culture to oppress women, basically, and to, to propagandize them into wanting to stay at home and be moms. And it isn't because males forced them to, it was because those kind of ideas were selected by natural selection. Women who wanted to stay home and had kids stayed home and had kids. And we're all descended from them. And we're all descended from them, presumably. Like, there was this idea of sexual selection applying to cultural artifacts, right? And in particular, I never thought of this. I never looked at the Great Pyramids and thought, okay, that's a peacock's tail equivalent in the world of culture. So once I sort of dug into this metaphor, I started seeing it everywhere, right? Okay, it's, it's something which may have been a signal at one point that kind of just took on a life of its own. Yeah, it's, it's called runaway dynamics. It's well known in, in evolution. And Rob and I at our 85 book showed that a prestige biased cultural transmission could have the same runaway peacock's tail dominant as, as sexual selection. So there's a broad analogy there. Well, maybe elaborate on the pyramid example, right? So clearly societies that have the capacity to engage in large-scale public works are going to thrive and leaders who are able to inspire that are going to gain respect and succeed. And so pyramid doesn't really help much with feeding the populace, but it is a large scale public work, right? It's when the irrigation ditches are done, you know, you move on to this thing, right? I mean, public projects are social tools. And if you can get everybody working together, they feel good. And if they benefit from it, they feel even better. And in practical public works are good things. But sometimes they can be problematic because, I mean, if you dig a well, what about the people who live near the well have an advantage which the people who live far away from the well don't have? So dream up something totally crazy, like build a pyramid for the son of the sun or whatever. Just do this crazy thing. And it's a public works project that everybody can get behind as long as they believe it. And it still fits the purpose of binding people together. And then when you've done this amazing thing, and everybody works well together and everything's wonderful. You got to do something else, right? So you build an even bigger pyramid next time. And as long as the society can keep on going like that, what's going to stop it until suddenly it does stop and then bang, it's over. <laughs> so, so presumably there's a trade-off between kind of internal learning and external learning, right? Between social cohesion and openness, right? To outside influences. And presumably there's some optimum that's a function of the changes in the environment and so forth. And so one thing that I've been puzzled by is when we look at these large scale changes, they're usually driven by population movements and not by kind of cross population transmission of know-how, right? And we still see this even today. We look at multinationals and we see that 
oftentimes there's more learning across different companies within the same geography than there is across parts of the company that are located in different parts of the world. And that's one of the reasons why people come to Silicon Valley. And, and then I don't know if this is a related question. Language seems to fragment relatively quickly and dialects emerge and accents emerge. And you have in your book, you have this wonderful fictional depiction of folks encountering folks from other groups and they can immediately recognize their kind of relatedness based on the way they speak. Presumably that, that tells you immediately whether you pay extra attention to the people who are distant, but usually you pay more attention to the people that are, that are closer. Yeah, that's my picture of it. Particularly in the Holocene, we've specialized in creating relatively small groups of people that are adapted locally to the local geography, or in the case of modern firms, the local social situation. And we take pride in doing it our way, right? And we look down on the people who do it their way. And, and that kind of chauvinism is part of the adaptation to the Holocene, to creating complex social systems with a bunch of different specialists. So the doctors look down on the lawyers and vice versa. Uh, the academics look down on everybody. And, th and that sort of thing inhibits adaptation to uh, new ideas, right? It, it slows down the diffusion of advantageous general adaptation. So it slows down the adoption of the plow or the adoption of domestic animals. And as you say, that's, we used to think that agriculture spread by people adopting the innovations of their neighbors. And yet it turns out that, at least in the beginning, farming in Western Europe was farming populations from the Near East to spread uh, the Danube River and across uh, uh, Western Europe. And, and the hunting and gathering people that were there didn't adopt agriculture for generations. And only when they gradually became incorporated into these uh, invaders' uh, social systems did they become farmers. It's a, a really interesting phenomenon. We, we thought about it all wrong for or most of us thought about it wrong for a long time. Well, in the story of the Holocene chapter, we have the child being adopted by another culture and gradually working his way in. And, and then finally, when they really needed it, giving them some information and they were willing to adopt it. And I think that that's equivalent to what happens with businesses now. A business headhunts a bunch of people from another business and eventually they reach a critical mass and and they bring change. I, I think ideas do spread between groups. It's just not that easy. So one of the claims that you make in the book is, you, or at least one of the speculations, has to do with the degree to which culture affects genetic variety, right? And whether culture can amplify genetic difference or can it kind of render genetic differences less important, right? Which way is it? Because I could see both making sense. You could kind of understand both arguments culture will amplify these differences or it'll kind of render the differences less important? I think both things are, are true. Most genetic differences between uh, humans are trivial, right? They're not very important. And at modern international business organizations show this in spades. You talked about Silicon Valley. I mean, one of the reasons Silicon Valley works is you've got engineers pouring in from all over the world, contributing to the advances in internet-related, electronics-related uh, businesses. And 
So I don't know what proportion of major Silicon Valley firms have non-European heads. It must be something like half of them. I don't know. Well, the workforce is primarily non-US, right? For the most part. Primarily. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. So uh, on the other hand, cultures has generated some, some interesting genetic differences. So the best worked out example is this adult lactase persistence phenomenon, which you probably know about. The, the basic idea is when people ad- adopt a dairying, we adults can't digest lactose. The milk sugar in, in milk constitutes about 40% of the calories. Primitively, we couldn't. Lactase is downregulated in around the time of weaning because the only lactase most people will see in their diets is from their mother's milk. But then when we got dairy goats and dairy cattle, then we had lactose available throughout our whole lives if we could just digest it. And for some reason, in Western Europe at least, and some African populations, the selection for ability to digest lactose was quite strong. And these selected populations developed the ability to uh, digest lactose as, as adults. And it seems like that, again, these local adaptations, cultural adaptations to various kinds of diets generated genetic differences in digestive physiology across human populations. And disease resistance is similar. Cultures are really good at creating situations which find genetic variability. We can't help it because, I mean, even though we're very similar genetically, we're also have lots and lots of variety in any population and culture is bound to bring it out. Like some people are better at mental arithmetic. Some people are better at learning reading. And on all of those things are, can be meticulously observed and measured in schools and perhaps with the ability to guide people into the right occupation or perhaps with the ability to correct whatever deficit exists. But there was a time very recently when hardly any humans can read and very few humans could do mental arithmetic. It was a specialization, but cultures created this environment today where it's incredibly important. And so even though it's a tiny genetic difference, we see it a lot. Well, we're going back to a world where you can't do it because you got this thing, right? So when I think about the whales, yeah. we've seen the whales kind of more or less going extinct. And I think it's presumably because their their social network has been shredded, right? And, you know, they lost the ability to, you know, survive on their own and forage on their own, right? They need to be able to communicate with other conspecifics at remote distances, mm-hmm. and, and that's been destroyed. So I wonder, where are we headed evolutionarily, right? I mean, because on the one hand, we're relying way more on cultural knowledge to survive. I mean, we may even get to the point where women will not be able to have natural childbirth, right? Because we'll need to have obstetric knowledge to give birth. And, and the location of the culture is also changing. So you can't ask your parent. I was just reading about, there's this guy on, on um, who's got a YouTube channel for kids to learn how to use hammers and nails and change flat tires because their dads aren't teaching them this stuff anymore, right? <laughs> so where you get your knowledge is getting more and more remote you know, more and more distant. And we're relying on this, you know, much, much bigger social network of knowledge transmission for pretty much everything. So if you had to speculate on kind of where will the knowledge be located and how is that going to impact the evolution of, of us both genetically and then maybe, you know, more proximate social organizational forms like families, how would you speculate? And then does it make us more vulnerable to 
large scale changes? Does it make us, you know, less resilient when it comes to shocks that occur? Yeah. So, uh, just to speak personally, an enormous amount of, uh, what I need to know, uh, exists on Wikipedia. This is a, uh, Wikipedia is a brilliant in- innovation as far as I'm concerned. Used to be when you wanted to learn about something you learned in college and now you need to brush up on it. Used to be, it was hard. You had to go to the bookstore and buy a new up-to-date textbook or something like that. Nowadays, when I need to brush up on something that I learned as a freshman in college, I just go to Wikipedia and it's uh, it's really neat. And all of these YouTube videos you referred to, how to change a tire, how to lay linoleum, uh, how to drive a nail, that's uh, brilliant stuff. On the other hand, we also find that the internet is potentially extremely fragile. And every time we lose the internet, people start tearing their hair out. We live in this little community of mostly retired people, Leslie and I do. And, and you might think that they would be the most resilient to the loss of the internet. But every time our internet goes down, there's a flurry of, of emails flying around. And these old folks are tearing their hair out because the internet's gone down, much less the Kids, I suppose, are even more dependent upon the internet than most of our neighbors. So, yes, that's pretty scary that we outsource so much of this to a technology that uh, might be uh, vulnerable to, uh, well, to cyber attacks. We're already seeing it become part of international uh, diplomacy and, and warfare, right? It's, well, as usual, the future is as, as obscure as the past. So, you can tell stories about the future, but I try to resist imagining that you can predict the future. The one thing is highly predictable is that future populations will be made up of the children of people who are having children. And there are lots of populations that are having far more children than ours. And so there are these extraordinary communities within North America, the Anabaptists, that are having large numbers of children. They're the ultra-Orthodox Jews in North America and Europe, but also in Israel that are having large numbers of children. And I'm sure there are other populations of other religions where they're steadfastly keeping in little family groups that are having large numbers of children. And I think they're bound to become more important and more powerful because they have the knack that evolution always admires, which is to produce offspring. Well, their cultures doesn't require explaining, but it seems like ours does, right? So it, it seems bizarre that we would see a cultural norm emerge that essentially mitigates against having children. And so how do we explain that? It leads me to wonder if you were to add an additional chapter where you created a story around a a family of the future, right? What would it look like? Would people still be having children? It seems like children have gone out of style in the West. I just interviewed a demographer and he was talking a lot about the decline of fertility in the developed world. And it's not just the developed world. It's, it's a trend that's happening in every country. It seems unusual that such a, such a norm would, would evolve. It, where did it come from? It doesn't seem like it has precedent, really. Well, yes, it doesn't have precedent in the sense in the early modern period, uh, people in big cities uh, had fewer uh, children in the cosmopolitan people. So, so it, in Leslie's in my way of thinking, the uh, rising importance of, of teachers and, and non-relative colleagues and military officers and bosses in our lives meant that 
much cultural transmission came from people who had achieved social roles that didn't involve uh, being parents. You don't have to be a parent to be a teacher. You don't have to be a parent to be a charismatic boss. And so uh, the support for pronatalist norms that kept birth rates high throughout most of human history came because your relatives and people in your community were the most important influences on your on your values. You you weren't really a, an adult until you married and had children in many communities. And so the whole status system revolved around, around reproduction. Mm-hmm. So Leslie's in my thought on why the demographic transition occurred, why modern families become small, is that the influences on on our ideas about about reproduction uh, have changed. It, in the past, uh, the strongest influences on, on norms for a behavior like that came from your family. It was it was your parents who expected you to have children. It was a, a, a social life in which you weren't really an adult until you until you married and and had kids. So uh, spinsters and bachelors had a, a sort of a diminished status in, in the community and parents uh, that raised a big, big successful family were the, were the real people who were admired in these communities. But when people started moving to cities and uh, working in factories, then other influences became important. Teachers became important and high status managers and, and bosses uh, became uh, much more salient in people's social networks. And so the the support for pronatalist norms just kind of vanished. Your your friends that uh, that you meet at the office or the factory they don't really care much whether you have kids or not. They're not grandma who's desperate to to have uh, grandkids to bounce on her knee. Uh, and so this idea that your status was closely tied to to marriage and reproduction just went away, or at least diminished greatly. And so the birth rate fell accordingly. I think it's easy to understand why people don't have children. Children are really hard work, and having them is inconvenient and hurts. And so I think that in the past, there was a strong drive, and it came from your culture and from members of your family who who were driving you. There were some people who were unlucky enough to live in a place that didn't drive them very hard, and we're not their descendants. We're the descendants of people who came from cultures that drove people pretty hard to have kids. But we seem to be the only animal that requires that cultural nudge, right? To have all- Yeah, that's kind of easy to explain. It's because we're cooperative breeders. So it's absolutely essential that mothers get help and that the social network is around helping to raise the kids. I mean, it really does take a village mm-hmm. to raise a young human. And so... It's really important that you get stimulus from your community in order to have it. Or if people were just internally driven to have children, then there would be far too many children and the network would break down. So there needs to be this kind of to and fro between the network and the individuals within the network about the desire of desirability of children right now, or else none of it would work. It kind of has to be a cultural driver there. So so demographers focus on how the increase in wealth is driving the reduction in fertility. But I think your argument is that it might be, it's less an increase in wealth and more a breakdown in these these tighter-knit families and more a flattening of uh, of the network that a typical mother lives in. And so her support network is substantially reduced. 
Right. The association between wealth and number of children you have is pretty simple because it's just the arrow of causation goes the other way. If you have fewer children, you are wealthier. But if, if you want to be Democrat, if you want to do well evolutionarily, you, you have exactly the right number of children for the amount of wealth you possess. So you, so every one of them gets just enough to eat. But it isn't just the network of support. It isn't that practical. It's the encouragement. It's the, it's everybody thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have more youngsters yeah. running around? And certainly now the mm -hmm. status comes more from your position in the corporate hierarchy or what you achieve outside of the household and much less what you achieve inside the household. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Well, one last question, because I think you end the book with this, which is that evolution should never be mistaken for progress. And there's no a priori reason to think that we're on a trajectory towards greater happiness either. Right? And so a lot of people, they attach some kind of normative value to this evolution. They have almost like a wig version of humans just getting better and better and societies getting better and better and, and cultures getting better and better. And I think you try to throw a little bit of cold water on that. So what is it then? When we think about the direction, what can we say about the direction of cultural evolution? Is there anything that we can say is always tending towards greater complexity? Is that something that we can be safe in saying? No, I don't think you can be safe at saying anything other than you'll, people will always believe that the way they think is better than the way people, those old-fashioned folk used to think in the past. Because we like the way we think, we're used to it, it's familiar to us. What do you think, Peter? Well, uh, it does seem to me that we can make uh, what Darwin called moral progress, uh, that uh, we can try to establish criteria that large numbers of people agree with about what would be a, a better life. And then we can, we can go about implementing those through technological means and, and political action. So to my way of thinking, we have these uh, modern societies some of which people report being quite happy if that if we want to make that our our criterion of progress it seems like a plausible criterion to me so we have these mostly small western european countries that, that report high levels of happiness but we've also got countries like costa rica and bhutan and, and other countries that are outliers on this happiness scale so we could we could take those as kind of best practices examples and try to build societies that are more like that. Now that we don't have to slavishly imitate Sweden, but it seems to me that most people who are interested in, in what my colleagues call policy analysis are, are believers in progress. They think we can do scientific experiments and, and make observations and make life better for people and that that's a good thing. And so I don't, certainly don't understand in the way of any of those people. Well, last question I have for you both is the book itself is, I think, a departure from not only your previous work, but also the field in general, because it uses a narrative technique. It uses these stories. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think I will remember the stories very vividly and as sort of a lattice through which I can remember the scientific points in the book. And I was wondering... Why did you choose to write these stories and put them in the book? Have you thought of just taking the stories out and publishing them separately, perhaps as a work of fiction or maybe a guide for children to understand evolution of human beings? I read a lot of historical fiction, and 
I think I'm going to remember the Wolf Hall series better than all of the Cambridge histories of Tudor England that I've read over the years, in spite of myself. So is this a new way of communicating scientific information, do you think? Is it something that's underappreciated? Should we do more of this? I would really like to get more feedback on that. I mean, I wrote the stories because because I love stories. I, I read, I learned a, a lot about physics by reading George Gamow's Mr. Tompkins in Wonderland books about Wonderland where where the um, speed of light was 30 miles an hour or something like that. And, and all the trains got squashed when they, uh, when they went fast and things like that. That made it so much easier when I was later taught those things for real. And so it was an experiment. And I honestly thought that the editor would say, this is crazy, you can't do this. But I'd love to get more feedback on um, whether they, people think those stories are, are useful. I know that a friend of mine who's using the book in a course says that the kids or the students that are at the university course are really, really enjoying it, saying that they, they've never had a, a book to read for a course where they, they couldn't run through it fast enough because they wanted to know how it ended. <laughs> so, so that's great. If it's useful, that's wonderful. It was scary to even try it. Well, I, I think the other reason that we wrote these stories is because we're thinking that the information we have about the past is really depauperate. And everybody is telling stories, even if they don't fess up and, and tell stories. So we can't know for sure what happened. We can't tell the story of us. We can only tell a story of us. Each of us can tell a story. And so if we're telling stories anyway, then we might as well tell good stories. Why not? So write entertaining stories instead of dressing it up as if it were some kind of scientific fact. I, I mean, there are scientific facts. I mean, and we it's like good science fiction. I think of it, what Leslie wrote is good science fiction. It doesn't violate any facts that we know of at any rate. On the other hand, if we, you can't tell a connected up story about the past without uh, inventing at least half of what you're saying because uh, the, well, we talked about when did people have language? Well, we have no concrete idea, really. Uh, the traces of language, until we have written language in, in the 5,000 years ago, we have no idea what people were speaking in the past. And it's pure, if not pure speculation, at least the next thing to pure speculation. Well, Leslie, Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Remember, the book is called A Story of Us, A New Look at Human Evolution. So, Check it out, everybody, and I hope to speak to you guys soon, maybe in person. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>